Listener Production. Marissa Peer has been named Britain's best psychologist by many. She has spent nearly three decades treating a client list that includes international superstars, CEOs, royalty and Olympic athletes. She is one of the central people who's helped us begin to see inside our brains. Marissa says that all our emotional and personal problems come from us believing that we're not enough. What follows is a conversation about Marissa's treatment for infertility, why so many famous people are so unhappy, and why the thoughts we tell ourselves matter. The mind only understands the present tense. It doesn't understand next year I'll have thin thighs, I'll be a millionaire, I'll be happy. It must be now. I am happy now. I am attracting love now, today, this minute. I'm becoming successful now. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Marissa Peer is a best-selling author and has helped thousands of people to overcome profound personal issues. Marissa sees her mind as the horse and she is the rider. In this episode, you will understand how to master your thoughts to master your world. Marissa, you've helped hundreds of thousands of people, celebrities, royalty, people from all walks of life. How did you get into this line of work? Um, It was actually by mistake. It was a sort of a very fortunate accident. I always wanted to be a child psychologist and I trained to do that. And um, I found it not very productive really because I always had three patients, mother, father, child, often divorced. And it was just hard work to be able to get people to change because each person had their own agenda And I sort of abandoned that. I was very young. I think you have to be quite older to take on the world of child psychology Mm. because you can't really make enough difference. I always wanted to make a massive difference fast. I'm a little tiny bit impatient, but I want results. So I gave that up and went to work for Jane Fonda. That was very different. Oh, wow. That's so different. So different. And I just connected with someone on the canals in Venice who was their producer. It's the small world. And in working for her workout studio in the early 90s, late 80s, it was very apparent that every third girl there, or woman, was anorexic, bulimic, body dysmorphic, or or exercise compulsive, sometimes several of those all at once, and quite a few men too. And it really opened my eyes to, you know, I should be using all my psychology treatment here. Mm. So I began to study the psychology of eating disorders And it was quite fascinating because I realized very early on, you know, you can't treat the illness. You've got to treat the thoughts that run it. And that led me into studying hypnotherapy, which was super effective, helped by the fact that I lived in West Hollywood. One roommate was bulimic, one was anorexic. That was kind of even normal then. Yes. So I then got into hypnotherapy to work purely really with eating disorders. And I did that, was super successful. People would ring me up and go, you know, I know you're the eating disorder, the anorexic girl. <laughs> Not me personally, yes, but yes. I've got a fear of bees or heights or elevators and I just want to see you. So I began to see everybody for everything, which is actually much more fascinating 
And I've always loved hypnotherapy. I've always had a passion for simplifying therapy. I find it's far too complicated for many people. It's too expensive. It takes too long. It's the only model that says, bring me your ailment, and we'll talk about it every week for five mm. years. I mean, no one goes to the dentist and says, can I talk about my pain? No one goes to the, with a broken limb and says, I need to discuss it. So I wanted to simplify it and make it faster. And then I created Rapid Transformational Therapy, which is kind of taking the world by storm, as you see, we've won tons of awards yes. for it. And um, What is the difference between that and normal therapy? Okay, so normal therapy is interesting, and I would never want to diminish any therapist because they've all got a good heart and they want to help. But normal therapy says, come along. And let's talk about your problem. Yeah. Let's discuss it. We may never get to the bottom of it, but you're going to build up a long relationship. Over time, you're going to learn to trust me and discuss things, and maybe that will make you better. But I'm like, well, who's got time for that? We live in a fast world. No one has time to turn up every week and slowly, slowly discuss their problem. Because if you're in emotional pain, it's so different to physical pain. You want the pain to end now. If I had an excruciating headache, I want it gone. I don't want to wait weeks and weeks to find out mm. why I have it. I want it gone. So conventional therapy has not necessarily a high success. There's something called HEBS, and the principle of HEBS says that if you keep talking about your problem, in the beginning it's great. You've got a lot of attention. Someone's listening. You feel good, but eventually – it stops working because both you and the therapist are frustrated at the lack of results. And I always wanted to say to them, look, you know, you can get rid of something in a session, certainly within three. When I began to create RTT, Rapid Transition, I was working with bulimics and turning them around in an hour. Really? RTT is very different. It says, okay, turn up in my office, and the first thing I'm going to do is go, well, where did this come from? But I was born like that. No. No one is born unable to do confrontation. No one is born scared of being looked at. No baby says, don't look at me. I've got fat legs or no teeth or no hair. No one is born unable to leave food. No one is born with insomnia or shyness or a self-sabotage or a fear of success or a belief that, they people who love them are going to leave them. These are acquired beliefs. And that's very good news because if you acquire something, you can get rid of it. So being an RTT therapist is rather like being a detective. The first thing you do, like a good detective, is to lay out information, look at it, go, what, what does this mean? Yes. How does this scene mean that you've gone through your life sabotaging things, being destructive, not having love? not having wealth, what happened in your early years to form that? And once you get the information, you must interpret it, interrupt it, and install something brand new. It's what I call five eyes. Investigate how this client got this belief. Find the imprint that's running the belief. Interpret it, interrupt it, install a completely different belief system. And it is really effective, but it also is effective because I believe having done this for 33 years, that there's really only three things wrong with people. They don't feel enough. They have a belief that what they want is never going to be available. It may be love or mm. success or health, not available to me, or they feel so different they can't connect. And really whatever problem my clients have, whether it's 
anorexia or alcoholism, whether it's compulsive shopping or shoplifting, it doesn't matter. It can only ever be one of those three things. And because I train all my students to look for and treat those three things, all of them are one of them, we have an extraordinary success rate, so much so that we're being asked to put it into rehabs. It's now in the school system all over the world. Um, we have hospitals using it, and um, we have some prisons and juvenile detention centers looking at how to put RTT into their prison because it, it's really effective. So it's very exciting. The phrase I am enough is obviously a big part of what you do. Yeah. Why do you find that that is so common in people that they don't think that they're enough? Like, where does that begin? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. So no baby is born going, I'm not enough, you know, I don't have a dad or I'm not a rich kid or a pretty kid. Every baby born believes they're enough, which is why they demand attention. If you shut a baby in a cupboard, it doesn't go, well, I just lie here, nobody wants me. You know, we hear of babies that are dumped on rubbish chips and it's the crying that alerts people to them because they have a belief someone is going to come and take care of me because I am worth it. And then, unfortunately, very, very early for many of us, we pick up these beliefs from other people. Your sister, she could read when she was five. Your brother, he never got food all over the floor. Your sister is a good eater. Your brother is a good sleeper. Your cousin, oh, she's so neat and tidy. And even if the parents don't do that, the school system will. You know, the best school in the world. They can put children against each other. They reward the kid that gets the best grade, but never the one that gets the best effort. We don't reward effort. We only reward achievements. So gifted kids win everything. And the ones that try hard don't. And so they begin to believe, what's the point? Mm. I'm going to make this. And so even good-natured parents and good-natured teachers start to tell children, you're not enough. And then we have magazines and um, television. And there are so many ways that we learn to believe we're not good enough. You know, and then, and then as we go, we have all these things like the Bikini Bridge, the Thigh Gap Challenge, the... A3 challenge for women especially there's something new every year that would make them hate their bodies or feel inadequate and you can see this in, in children as young as 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 where they began to think oh I'm not enough because I'm not smart or pretty or intelligent or interesting and, and the reason it happened so early is that you know if you um, were dating someone who mm. left your dad was really mean to us. And you can go, well, you know, my dad just lost his job or my dad's very bitter or my dad gets these terrible headaches and it makes him very cranky. You could kind of rationalize it. Yeah. Before the age of five, you have no logic, only feeling. And before the age of five, if your mother's always crying, if your parents are always fighting, if your dad isn't there, if they're unhappy, a child thinks one thing, my mom is unhappy, must be my fault. Yeah. I don't dad must be my fault and then they add on to this belief that I'm not enough because if I was they'd be happy and if that isn't bad enough that the child looks at their life and thinks if I was enough they wouldn't be unhappy they also add in a tag which is it's always going to be like this it's going to be like this for the rest of my life it will never change and if we look at someone like Princess Diana or Marilyn Monroe yes. there it is someone who had everything mm. except this belief I'm not enough. And many people 
buy into not enoughness and have a drive to become something famous, beautiful, extraordinary, talented, gifted. And they pull it off with great drive, but they still have the belief, yeah, I know, but I'm still not enough. I mean, you can look at someone like Michael Jackson or Britney mm. Spears and see that so clearly. The drive to make it was because I thought if I did, I would be enough. And I did make it, but I still don't feel enough. And where am I going to go now? That I've gone to my pinnacle, yes. my dream to feel enough, but I don't feel enough. And I can't go any higher. So now I have to drop down. I have to use drugs or drink or destructive behavior because I, I had the dream before. Now I haven't even got the dream. I've it's, just got the realization that I'm not enough. It's so interesting. How should parents be towards their kids to cultivate that I am enough? And so they don't think the opposite. Well, first of all, as a parent, when you label a child, you limit them, even a good label. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're clever. I love you because you help mummy. What the child hears is, and if I didn't, you wouldn't. Mm. So never say to your kid, I love you because you're beautiful. Say, I love you. I love you because you're lovable. Mm. See, lovable is permanent. Beautiful is temporary. I love you because you're smart. Then the kid goes, well, what if I, I can't always be smart? You know, my little girl, when she was at her, her first school, her second school, what you might call second grade, there were 12 kids in, this, in her year. She was the top of English, the top of art. When she went to the next question, Mummy, I'm not the top of anything. I said, darling, you used to be with 12 kids. Now you're with 90. Yeah. And you were the best, and now you're going to be amongst the best. But it was very hard for her to lose that label. She was the best because it was a tiny group. Then she could only be amongst the best. And she found that hard for a while to give up that label because it had kind of identified her. And then she thought, well, if I'm not the best, I must be the worst. Mm. So with children, you have to say things like, I love the fact that you love learning. It's great you love learning. I love the fact that you're smart. Um, But I love you. You have to never praise them for being good or because they they don't understand that. The best thing to tell your kids every day is that you're enough and I'm enough. We're all enough and you're very good at something. By the way, you don't have to be good at everything. That's huge pressure for a kid to be a straight A student. And parents are going to say, can you make my kid good at everything? I say, are you good at everything? No. Well, (laughs) then. Are you good at math, science, English, art, geography, sport? I don't think so. Yeah. Pressure that is to expect your kid to be an all-round grade-A student because that's terribly unfair. We have one kid who's good at maths, one who's good at IT, one who's good at art, and that's why in the world I would, I would employ someone to do my garden because I'm not a gardener. I'd employ someone to do something else because I'm not good at that. But if we were all good at everything, we wouldn't employ other people. Yeah. Always surprised that parents pressurize their kids. So to get over that, every day get them to join that you're enough just where there's no one better than you, but you're not better than anyone either. Everyone's got their own skills. You have a skill, you're as good as everybody. And also tell them this truth. I love you because you are lovable and your whole life you're going to find people who love you just like I do because you're lovable, because I have people who come to my office and go, I can't find love. I have never yes. been able to find love. And when I go back, they always go back to this. My dad used to go, nobody will ever love you like me. You'll never, ever, 
ever find any wow, love. Wow, that's so fascinating. And, and they always have this belief, I can't find love. My mother used to say, nobody could ever love you like I do. And if you say that as you try it every day, it becomes an imprint. Mm. It has an imprint. You're never going to find love as an adult. Your school days are the best days of your life. Well, that's crazy. Why would nature go? Let me give you the first bit. Yes. Oh, God, it's amazing. Then it's all downhill. For many people, they're not the best days. You don't get to choose what to eat, what to wear, mm. where to go. You're a dependent child. When you're independent, you have freedom. But we, we've got sold such a confusing lie and young children just don't understand. They live in a world of feeling and not logic. And if the feeling is confusing, they remain confused. But you can make it much easier by saying, you know, life is great and you're a great kid and I love you just the way you are and so are lots of people. And there's something you can do better than anyone. And you'll find that. Don't worry about it. You'll find your mm. own gift and your life's going to be amazing. It's so unbelievably important the way that we obviously talk to our children but also talk to ourselves. Absolutely. The mind, I know that you say the mind believes everything. Why is that? Well, your, your questions are so good, by the way. They're oh, great. Thanks. The subconscious mind is always switched on. It is always on record. It's never on pause. It's never on malfunction. It's switched on. It records everything. So when you're five years old and say, Mom, you know, can I go on this school trip or I need new school shoes or I need um, running shoes or a gym kit, and the mother doesn't have enough money and she starts getting very upset and oh, I can't find the money and where's the money coming from and to buy you these, now we can't pay the heating. I don't know where to find the money. Already that child is wired to believe you have to find money and you can't find money. And money doesn't grow on trees and there's not enough money and it slips through my fingers. And your beliefs, you learn half of what you learn in your life before you are five. So if your parents go, we just can't find the money. People like us don't have money. Money is a struggle. Mm. And look at those people over there. They've sold their soul to the devil. Good people like us shouldn't be rich, and rich people aren't good. Your child hasn't got any logic to go, what are you talking about? Oprah Winfrey's good, and she's rich. They haven't got any logic at all. They have yes. to believe what you tell them. And now you've wired them to believe that they can't find money or, well, you know, love hurts. It's like that song, Love Hurts. No, it doesn't. Love's a wonderful thing. It makes everything. It doesn't hurt. It's a great healing force. But we tell children really weird things and wonder why they grow up so confused. Um, same thing as if a child watches mum crying because the relationships aren't working or dad going, oh, my God, I've got such a headache. This is mm. the stress of work. My job is killing me. They go, that thing called work is killing you? I don't want one of those things called a job. Then they wonder why they grow up saying, I, I, I can't succeed at work. I can't make money. I can't find love. I can't keep love. Because just like a computer, we become wired to believe what we live. We learn what we live. And what RTT does better than anything else, it goes back and it changes that wiring. It almost rewires you back to how you should be, full of confidence, full of self-belief, able to find a gift and talent and monetize it, definitely able to find and maintain love because that's available to everybody.
So what are the positive things that we should be saying to ourselves? Oh, I'm enough is the number one Mm. because what happens with people who say, I'm an addict, whether you're an addict or a compulsive shopper or a compulsive hoarder or you're compulsively needy and need a ton of praise from other people, whatever that is, without question, you have a belief, I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not interesting enough. I'm not successful enough, not attractive enough, not worthy enough. And if you go, I am enough, your mind goes, of course. You see, when you say, oh, I'm a goddess, your mind goes, no, you're not. No, you haven't even washed your hair. You're not a goddess. You're living in an apartment with five other people. You haven't even got your own car. You're not a goddess. We go, I'm going to sing that song, hey, I'm a rock star. I got my rock. This mind goes, I don't think you're a rock star. You haven't got any money. Where is your fan base if you're a rock star? But when you say to the mind, I am enough, it Mm. goes, well, of course you are, because it remembers that innate belief you were born with your enoughness. I'm enough. No baby says, you know, I shouldn't cry. My mum's exhausted. I shouldn't throw up this organic broccoli because my mum spent ages steaming it and puring it. So the enoughness taps into the truth about you. Its strength really is in its simplicity and its honesty. You see, when you say I'm a goddess, it's you that argues back. When you say I'm enough, there's really nothing to argue with because it's so universally true. So if you want to make yourself feel better, there's several things you can do. One is to tell yourself here and every day, write it on your mirrors. Yes. It everywhere, put it on your fridge and fridge magnets. Change all your passwords to contain a version of that. Make your phone alerts ping twice a day so you're becoming immersed in this message because the mind learns by repetition. It will let in wherever you tell it without questioning it. Secondly, start to go, I want it. I want it. I want success. I want love. I've chosen to find it. I've chosen to love finding it. Because if you go, yeah, but I want love, but I might be rejected, I want success, but what if I'm no good? I want to be wealthy. What if I don't know who my friends are? Your mind is now very confused. Your mind is like a laser moving towards what you want unless you link pain and pleasure to it. I want love, but I die if the person I love leaves me. I want success, but never going to see my kids or go to the gym. I've got to work 18-hour days. That will probably kill me. Yeah. The mind can't move towards one thing and away from another when they are the same. That's what I found working with anorexics. I want to eat, but I eat food. Bulimics, I want to eat, but I've got to throw it all up because I want to starve myself. You can torture your mind by linking pain and pleasure to the same thing, or you can go, right, I want love. I deserve it. I'm worthy of it. I can be successful. I've got a gift I can monetize your mind because you know what? I understand what you want and I'll take you there. Because we, we've all got this new word mindset. Yes. Okay, I've read the book. Obama said mindset will take you anywhere you want to go. I read somewhere that success is 80% mindset and 20% application. I don't know what is mindset. I don't even know what it is. It's how you dialogue with yourself. Mm. The way talk to yourself, the words you use, the phrases you use. And no one says, look, there is a technique for dialoguing with yourself. If you went to Harvard Business School, they go, by the way, this is how to dialogue with your customers. If you went to the rabbi, I go, this is how to dialogue with your partner to have yeah. a great marriage. But how about 
how to dialogue with you, and there is a way to do it. First of all, the mind only understands the present tense. It doesn't understand next year I'll have thin thighs, I'll be a millionaire, I'll be happy. It must be now. I am happy now. I am attracting love now, today, this minute. I'm becoming successful now. It must be in the present tense. It must use words that make a picture going, well, everything is okay and life is very nice. Your mind goes, WTF. I don't even know what that means. Yes. You have I'm dynamic and motivated and passionate and whatever you want. Let's imagine you want to spend all weekend, like we train people in our TT, and they usually spend some time building a website. We teach them marketing. They have to say things like, right, I'm going to spend all weekend working on that website, understanding that marketing, being phenomenal. But they can't go, but, you know, when I do that, I can't go out to the bar with my friends. But when you go, I want this. I've chosen this. Mm. I've chosen great about it. I'm on fire with enthusiasm. And I go, oh, that's great. Then I'll give you more enthusiasm. So your mind must believe you want it, must be present tense. The words must be super exciting. It's so funny you say that because I actually had that the other weekend. I was doing um, work and... I thought to myself, it's Saturday night. I could be out with friends right now, but I've decided that I'm going to, you know, do work, which is very important to me. And I had this, I could tell my mind was like, are you a loser because you're not actually going out and it's like, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night and you're sitting here doing work or am I doing work because I love it and I've chosen to do it and Mm. I've said no to my friends. And then as soon as I did exactly what you said, I was completely settled with that. Yeah, because what's happened there, I'm so glad you brought that up, is you suddenly realise you had a choice. When you have a brilliant brain, you have a choice. Rationalise why things are so bad or talk yourself out. Imagine you want to get a gold medal at the Olympics. You don't go, oh, well... I do want that medal, but, you know, the training is so hard. I've got to get up at 5 a.m. Mm. and train in the dark. And I think I want the medal. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll be up at 5 o'clock chipping ice off my car. I'm going to run in wind, in snow, in rain. I want it. When Marines are training, they sing, I'm a Marine. Bring it on because the mind goes, oh, you want it? I got it. You want it. And if your mind thinks you want it, it will take you towards it. But if your mind thinks you're not sure you want it or does the price you pay for wanting it hurt you or take you away from it? You know, if you wanted to go and have a tattoo, you wouldn't go, I'm going to have a tattoo, but I'm going to ring up the tattoo. Brother. Does it hurt? Yes. freaking hurts. Want angel wings across your back? That's going to take two years. Yeah, it hurts. I, I want the pain. I'll put up with it for that tattoo. But if you go and go, does it hurt? You know, that needle, go, listen, go away. You can't possibly have a tattoo. If you're already stressed about it, if it hurts, but if you want something and you tell your mind you want it, you can bypass the pain. Yes. Become into the pain, go bring it on, which is what endurance athletes do anyway. Because if your mind thinks you want it, it's a bit like giving birth. You go, does that hurt? Well, for some people, Yeah. But if you want something, you can't focus on the pain. Yes. Focus on the pleasure. And you can't focus on the pain and the pleasure because then you go backwards, forwards, forwards, backwards. And if you keep saying to your mind, I want this, you know, you were saying, how can I, you help people? Here's an expression mm. that will change 
your entire life. I've chosen this and I've chosen to feel great about it, which is kind of what you did last weekend. So let's imagine, you know, I'm, I'm not having sugar anymore. It's really bad for you. Mm. And you're used to having a very sugary, creamy coffee and you take it and go, this, I don't like it like this. I need the sugar. You have to go, no, nope, I've chosen it like this and I've chosen to love it. And I'm going to keep saying, actually, I prefer it. I love it. I want it, which is not true, but it becomes true. I've chosen to pick fruit instead of donuts. I don't automatically go, yeah, I love the fruit. I hate the donuts. I keep saying, actually, I do prefer the food. It's sharper, crisper, nicer. Your mind really doesn't know if what you tell it is real or wrong, true or false, good or bad, healthy, unhealthy. It doesn't know, and it certainly doesn't care. So you might as well tell it amazing things. That guy is going to ghost me on Tinder. That person's going to dump me. I'm never going to get that job. Why would you say that when you could go, well, I've got something to offer the world. Someone's going to love me. I've got something I can monetize because if the mind doesn't care what you tell it, why don't you tell it amazing things mm. and have an amazing life? Sounds too easy. That's because it is. It is. I've done things like that before and I've noticed a dramatic change. So I totally agree with everything that you're saying. We spoke earlier before we touched on the fact that you um, have helped a lot of celebrities and the royal family, you kind of think, well, like, what do they have to be worried about? What, yeah, what, what well, problems arise for them? Well, you see, if you're a celebrity, people love you because of what you look like. You turn up and they worship you. And a lot of my clients who are models, you know, people say, well, you were so attractive in your youth. Oh, God. They worship something that's not real. You know, I've opened my door to many rock stars, tiny and nothing like they look on stage. Even Madonna, she's very small and petite and they look so, they have such a big persona on stage, but they're not really like that. When you see them with no makeup and without all the trappings and they know that. So they have this belief too, I'm not enough. You know, it's what I call the five stages of success. Who is Madonna? Get me Madonna. Get me a Madonna type. Get me a younger Madonna now. And then we go right back to who is Madonna. So you start off, nobody knows who you are. Everyone knows who you are. Then they want a younger, taller version of you. I mean, I saw that many years ago when Michael Hutchins was presenting an award to the to. Noel Gallagher, and he said, well, a has-been shouldn't present it. I thought that was so cruel. He said, a has-been shouldn't present it to me. And it was really mean. I loved Michael Hutchins. But people who are um, celebrities are very creative. If you're creative, you're suggestible. If you're suggestible, it is your job to give yourself good suggestions. But people who are creative are very fragile souls and it's very easy to go, well, that's not good enough. And, yeah, you're okay, but that person is better. You know, Meryl Streep, when she went to audition for the love interest in King Kong, the director said, Meryl, you're not pretty. Oh, God. You're not pick it in this business. Go home. And she said, you know, your opinion is one opinion. And a sea of opinions. I'm just going to get another opinion. And thank goodness she did because... She's a very gifted actress, and if you saw her in Out of Avenue and Robert Redford washed her hair, she looked beautiful. But she isn't strikingly beautiful, but she's an amazing actress. But she had the strength to go, no, 
that's your opinion, it's mm. not mine. Any of us go, that's your opinion. It must be true, I'm going to let it in. And you must never let in someone else's opinion because the most important opinion is your opinion. Well, that actually makes a lot of sense. And it leads me on to the question, what do you do when you get negative feedback? Because it can happen to anyone if they're an athlete or in a working environment. How do we take that which sometimes it can be constructive criticism as well, but use yeah. it so it doesn't affect us moving forward. So you have to separate destructive criticism concept. If your boss said, you know, you're great at your job, but you're always late or you always leave things to the last minute and I see a talent in you, but I really want you to look at this behaviour and just change that one bit. And you go, okay, that, that's constructive. They praised me first and... If, like my little girl said, Mommy, whenever you come into the house, you always play your messages on your machine before you come and see me. That was constructive. I realized how that made her feel. And although I was wanted to get to my messages first, I remember I must go to her bedroom first. If my husband said, you know, when you wake up, the first thing you reach for is your phone, and I feel you're making that more important than us, I would take that on board. But destructive criticism, oh, you're no good, you'll never make it, look at you, you're so wooden, it's an insult to wood. You have a choice not to let that in. There will always be destructive critics. Mm. Trolling has made them become anonymous. There's more of them than ever before. But you have a choice. Am I going to let that in? A bit like Meryl Streep, that's mm. an opinion in a sea of opinions. You know, I'm a public figure. I'm on YouTube and I get lovely comments, but I get people going, I hate you. You're just a stuck-up posh bitch. What do you know? And I don't go, oh my God. I go, wow, that's okay. I know that I'm not any of those things, neither posh nor stuck-up <laughs> nor a bitch. And I can think, I wonder what kind of person sits at home typing that out. And I can feel sorry for them, but I don't have to let it in. It's another thing that will change your life beyond recognition. The choice, I will not let in destructive criticism. You know, maybe when you're 18 and someone you love dumps you and says, well, you bore me or there's nothing to you and you have a choice, shall I let that in? If they loved me once and said, oh, you're amazing, you're sexy, you're dynamic, now they go, you're boring. I'm, I still have the same because I haven't gone anywhere. No. Sometimes we grow out of people. Sometimes we say really mean things to people. But you don't have to let it in. The most important words you'll ever hear are yours and the most important opinion is yours. And, and you see what grows self-esteem is praise. There is nothing that will grow your self-esteem, like praise. And many of us go through life going, oh, uh, could you, could you make me feel good? Could you praise me? Could you say something nice? Could you take my self-esteem that's down here and grow it up? And they go, yeah, I could do that. I could date you or befriend you and I'll take that job and I'll grow your self-esteem. And then one day I'm going to leave you. Now it's going to diminish again. But if you take on the job, in, it's it's an amazing job. When you take on that job of growing your self-esteem, it never goes away. So if you give someone else the job, they can dump that job anytime they like and you go back to being needy. When you mm. take it on, it's an amazing job. So if you want to grow in self-esteem, don't let in criticism, but also 
take a minute and think, what would I have loved? If I had the best mum, the best dad, the best teacher, what would, they would have, what would they have said to me growing up? And you know what? It's always the same. You're a good kid. I love you. How lucky am I to be your parent, teacher, mm. friend? I love you just because you, you go, okay, I've always wanted to hear those words. The missing bit in me is I never heard those words. And now my dad is dead. He would have never have said that anyway because he was a bitter, unhappy person. Or my friend at school that dumped me and ran off with another friend. I don't even know where she is. Yeah. Should I find her on Facebook? Hey, do you like me? No, don't bother finding her. Find you. Become your own best friend, your own loving parent, your own boss, and go, you are great. You're wonderful. You're warm. Something about you, you're kind and smart and engaging and magnetic. Your mind doesn't go, that's not true. It goes, yes. well, whatever you say is true. So whatever you didn't hear from the person that should have told you that, tell yourself. Say it to yourself and it will change your life. People say, well, it's all right for you. You've had a child. life." I was kicked out of college. Yeah. I thought I was so stupid that I should be a nanny and that's the only thing I could ever do. My first love of my life dumped me. Now I think I'm so glad he did. Imagine if I with him. I fired from jobs. And I think, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. So glad I was thrown out of college. I'm so glad I was fired, dumped and rejected because it made me realize, oh, it's up to me. You know, when I was told I could never have children, I even then thought, I'm not going to give you the permission to tell me that. No one is going to tell me I can't have children because I won't let that in, and I went on to have a perfect baby. Well, that brings me on to my next topic that I know you've done a heap of work in. How do you treat women who believe that they are not able to have kids? Because I know you do a lot of work in that area. I do, I do, I do. And it's actually my biggest learning curve was being told I would never have children. I couldn't get pregnant. Even if I did, I would never carry a baby to full term and I could never deliver a healthy baby. I wouldn't get pregnant. If I did, it would have something wrong with it. And that was my destiny, which I chose never to believe. That's unbelievable that you chose never to believe that because most people would listen to a doctor and just believe whatever they were saying. I I heard a voice in my head going, don't let this in. I heard a voice many years later when I had cancer saying the same thing, do not let that in. And I've always had that voice going, you don't have to let this in. And it's really stood me in very good stead. So when I began to work with women who couldn't get pregnant, and would say things like, well, you know, I've got unexplained infertility. What is it? I'm like, well, nobody knows. That's why it's called unexplained. Unexplained means you've got great eggs, you've got a great womb, your partner's sperm is like military sperm, plenty of it, swims straight and is amazing. But the unexplained is something up here. And they always go back to the same thing. I'm 15, I think I'm pregnant. Oh, my God, it will end my life. I'm 16, I've just had a termination. I think I could never ever go through that again. I, I'm 26. I've just had my first baby, a much wanted baby. And I said, oh, my God, could you imagine having another one? Because it would kill me. And now I understand why I can't get pregnant because I'm telling my mind, I don't want a baby. It would kill me to have a baby. We make all these jokes about, oh, my God, can you imagine having a baby, being kept up all night? We call it torture and hell when actually having a baby is such a joy. When I, when I actually got pregnant and was having my baby, 
I was in the hospital. I think I just delivered. I had an amazing birth. Mm. And the nurses came around. They gave me Kleenex. What's that? They said, that's for postnatal depression. Everybody gets Oh, my gosh. The whole ward is a sea of tears. I'm like, no. I said, I'm not having postnatal depression. I'm having postnatal euphoria. They looked at one of those crazy ones. She's obviously still high on the oxygen. (laughs) I didn't have any drugs. But I said, no. I am not having postnatal depression. I'm having postnatal euphoria. My baby, I've already labeled her my nonstop joy. And all my friends go, oh, my God, it's exhausting. I'm like, no, they sleep all the time. Are you straight? No. I mean, I took my baby everywhere. She was great. I never ironed, like, baby clothes or spent ages ironing baby sheets. I just loved being with her. Yes, Never cried because I was so happy. She was so happy. And I was told many times I would lose my baby, that I was losing her there and then, that she wouldn't be born. And that if she was, she'd be very underweight. And she was born so perfect and so healthy and so strong. And I knew that. Isn't that amazing? Must never allow someone else the power to tell you. You know, in England, you may not tell anyone with cancer, well, you have 10 months because people turn into that expectation, Mm. well, this is going to happen because they know that if you tell people that, it becomes real. And and that's what a placebo is. A placebo is the physician in you that does what you tell it. And it's so fascinating that even... Girls who are adopted tend to have exactly the same period as their adopted mother. The mother goes, oh, I've got the curse. I've got the cramp. I'm in agony. Their daughters have the same. And if they go, well, I'm off to play tennis now because periods I don't even notice and nothing's going to stop me living my life, then they too have that reaction. Women who age really well, like Goldie Horn would have a daughter that ages really well because all they've ever seen is, oh, my mum's out doing Pilates at 65. She's got a great boyfriend. Mm. But a girl whose mother goes, oh, I've got my sinus headaches now and, oh, isn't it's all depressing and life is just awful, can't help but absorb that by osmosis. It's so unbelievably fascinating and I've seen it amongst a lot of people and we kind of we spoke to Bruce Lipton about a lot of that Quite kind lovely. of... Yes, about very similar things. Marissa, I just have a few questions for you. Of if you could turn back time, back to your 20-year-old self, what would you say to that woman? I would say that everything you worry about is never going to happen. In fact, statistically, only 4% of what we worry about is ever going to occur. I worried about never having a baby, never finding love, never being married, never being successful. I had no clue I was so scared of being rejected and that really was very consuming. I didn't think I was attractive or smart. I was always dieting and starving myself and I'd go, stop all of that. Love yourself, love your body, you know, eat a cookie sometimes, celebrate life. And I would tell myself not to worry because everything I worried about, none of it ever came true. And even the stuff that did come true, I never worried about getting an illness, which I did get. That was just a blip anyway. Mm. So I would tell myself, don't worry, everything is great. And I would have shown myself how to believe in myself because no one showed me that. I had to find it out. But now I show other people how to do that. Well, that goes on to my next question. What do you want your legacy to be? 
my legacy. Now, I'm very lucky I have a living legacy of RTT, and it's already changing the world. As I say, it's in hospitals, it's in rehabs. I would never have imagined when I was that little kid feeling hideous, feeling like a freak and feeling I had nothing to offer the world that I'd have this groundbreaking, multi-award-winning therapy. I mean, Wayne Dyer always said, do not die with your music still inside you. Mm. Make sure it gets played beforehand. So my legacy is already happening and I feel very blessed that I'm living to see my legacy. That was really important for me. What's your heart's greatest desire? My heart's desire is sharing people that if you think you're lovable, the whole world will join you. And if you think you're not, sadly, they'll join you in that too. So my heart's desire is everyone to feel great about themselves all the time and to show them how easy it is to do that when you know how. What is a life of greatness to you? Making a difference. You know, so many people say to me, I don't know my purpose. You know, what is my purpose? And when you can find a job that gives you meaning, purpose, significance and connection, you are blessed beyond belief. And I would never do anything other than the job I do now because I have meaning, purpose, connection, significance, diversity. I love what I do. Marissa Peer, thank you for all of your unbelievable words of wisdom. They are so important to everyone. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.